It might be the best news in the world that for those who trust you, Jesus, you command our destiny. Not a moment, not a circumstance goes by without your provision to make us happy in the worship of you and your Father. And that's what we need. We need right now for you, Jesus, to help us. Would you, by the Holy Spirit, help us to see and love your glory in the Word? Would you help us to realign our heart's priorities with yours? Would you empower it by the Spirit? We ask in your precious name, amen. You and I are born spiritually out of shape. We're not born in shape. We're not born stretched to move the way we ought to spiritually. We're not born strong enough to do what God calls us to do naturally. We're just not. We don't naturally take the right posture when we come before God. Our souls don't naturally do that. My legs, they bend in one direction. They go like this. My ankles move like this. My knees go like this. My hips go like that. The other day, I saw Stephen sitting on a couch with both of his legs tucked under him like this. That's incomprehensible to me. I don't know how a person does that. I drive along the Sinai, I see people crouched on the side of the road, and I think if I tried that, my knees would explode off the front of my legs because they don't do that. They just don't work that way. Now, I shouldn't assume that my inflexibility determines what my legs ought to do. They ought to do more than they do, but they need to be stretched. Our worship is similar. Most of us have limited conceptions of what our hearts ought to do when they encounter God. We naturally think our, our, our heart ought to assume this posture when it comes before God. Our heart ought to do this, but we shouldn't assume just because we're naturally built that way, that's the way that we should do it. Many of us, all of us, need to be stretched Here's an example. In our day and age, most of us think that if something is happy, it's either funny or it's cute. Or if something's serious, it's either boring or sad. Right? But God is not cute or funny. I mean, he made everything that's cute and funny. He thought it up. But you would not come before God, before the presence of God, and think, that's funny. God, you're cute. No one would think that. And yet, he is the happiest being in the universe. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy forever. God is serious. He's not a toy. He's not a game. Whenever you're dealing with God, it is life or death. And yet... He's not boring or sad. No one's bored when God is around. I've seen my kids stand right next to a lion at the zoo with a thick sheet of glass between them, and they were happy. They weren't happy because the lion was funny. They were happy because he was powerful and beautiful and scary, and they could be right next to him and say, that's worship. If you imagine that being happy is not compatible with dealing with the most serious realities in the universe, 
You need to be stretched. And you need to be strengthened, too. We're not dealing with a small God. That's part of our problem. We think that God is small. We come before him with our natural inclinations of the way we ought to treat someone because our view of him is very tiny. Jesus is about to get really fired up in this passage. Intense fired up. And it's because his father is being treated as though he's very small. His father is worthy, not of a little worship. That's why Jesus is going to get intense. Not of a little worship, but of all our worship. And we need strength to see and feel God's greatness in worship. So here's here's what we're getting at. If we're going to worship God rightly, we need our categories stretched to match his splendor. And we need strength to worship in a way that's fitting. All of us. Every one of us needs that. Jesus feels intensely that his Father is worthy of our worship. And he's going to secure it. He's going to make it happen. That's what he's come to do. So here's the outline. Here's how we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to see that Jesus is zealous for right worship. Then we're going to see that he has the right to reform our worship. And then we're going to ask, what does it mean for us, our worship? And then we'll see one final warning about wrong worship. So that's where we're going. Let's see that Jesus is zealous for right worship. Read with me, verses 13 and 14. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Okay, what are they doing? What are these people doing in the temple? They're providing services. They had set up shop inside the temple. If you had come from far away to worship and you needed to offer a sacrifice, you usually wouldn't want to bring your oxen all that way with you. So you'd bring money and you could pay for an oxen at the temple for a fee. They had an Al-Ansari exchange there. You had all this money from all over the Roman Empire. You could come there, get it exchanged to the right coinage so that you could pay the temple tax for a price. What does Jesus think about these businesses in the temple? Let's see. Verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Soak in this drama for just a minute. He makes a whip of cords, and he drove who out of the temple? I read some people this week, some pacifists. Those are people who think you should never use violence ever, and they're saying, well, he wasn't, he wasn't driving out the people. He was very gently getting the animals out of the temple courts. No, look, at verse, look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Think of the kind of intensity to drive out all these people from a courtyard in the temple with their animals. Think about this. They're chasing their animals, trying to get them back. He's flipping over tables and pouring their coins on the ground. What do you think would happen if you go to town center, you grab someone's cash register, you smash it on the ground? You think things are going to be cool? 
Things are not cool right here. They're anything but cool. They're very heated. Okay. What would evoke this kind of intensity from Jesus? Does he not like sheep? Does he not like the entrepreneurial spirit? No. He tells us. He's telling them that he does not want his father's house to become a place of trade. He doesn't want the temple to be a place where people do their business. So this would have been in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jewish people could come. They could pray, offer worship there before the Lord. And instead, this place had been cleared out to make money. And apparently, that makes Jesus angry. Is that the right word? John uses the word zeal. Do you see that? Verse 17, John's going to quote from Psalm 69, and he's going to say that Jesus was zealous. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the disciples go back. They're reading their Bible after Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead, and he's ascended to heaven. And they're singing passages in the Old Testament, and they're saying, that's Jesus. That's a pattern of Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. And they think, that's what Jesus was like. Do you know what it means to be zealous? Zealous, to be zealous is to have an intense desire. It means you want something really badly. Oftentimes, this word is translated as jealous. You're jealous when you really want something that someone else has. You're zealous when you really want something, not necessarily for selfish reasons, but you really want it. And John is telling us through Psalm 69 that Jesus is consumed with zeal for his father's house. He doesn't want this a little bit. He's consumed with a desire to see that his father is honored. Jesus is not concerned about the building. We're going to see that in a second. What's consuming Jesus with an intense passion is that his father is not getting the kind of worship that his father deserves. That's why Jesus is consumed with zeal. So we're just getting behind Very intense action is happening here. This is not cute Jesus shooing people out of the temple. He's scaring grown men out of the courtyard. Do you see what's behind that intense action? It's an intense desire that his father be honored. That's why he's acting the way he is. These people are treating worship lightly. They're treating the worship of the Gentiles as a small thing. The Gentiles could come and pray, or we could use this space for business to make some money. They're treating God's house as if it were less than an earthly king's house. I mean, you wouldn't fill an earthly, you wouldn't go to a sheikh's house and fill it up with sheep and oxen, would you? No. And how does Jesus feel about that? Anger. He's under control because he never sinned but he's not relaxed. He is consumed. This is who our king is. This is one place that our spiritual muscles need to be stretched. A lot of people think of Jesus as a relaxed, hippie, 
guru who's out floating around teaching everybody to chill and be nice to one another. Is that how you think of Jesus? Or do you think of a man who is consumed with a passion to see God the Father honored the way he ought to be honored? Because that's who he is here. It's not okay to push out worship to his Father to sell oxen. When we treat worship lightly, we just think, I'm just going to come before the Father with whatever attitude I feel like. That fires Jesus up. It fires him up to do something quickly because his Father is worthy of all our worship. These people are not thinking about God that way. He wants you to come to his Father in the right way. This is his Father we're talking about. He's not a disinterested party. Being consumed with zeal means I care a lot about my Father's worship. We have to be stretched to think about God this way. Jesus wants us to come to his Father. He wants us to come to his Father. So come, come amazed at the unbelievable approachability of God in Jesus, but combine that with a sense of the absolute danger of approaching God without him. This is God. This is his Father. We naturally think, well, God is either holy and boring or he's good and little. That's not how Jesus thinks of his Father. And we've got to be stretched if we're going to treat God the right way. Jesus wants you to know there's no one more loving than his Father. No one. These things I'm about to say don't exclude each other. There's no one more loving than his Father, and he wants you to come. And he wants you to also know There's no one more worthy of our absolute reverence and trembling worship. Both of those are true. This intense zeal of Jesus should stretch us. He is is consumed. He burns with a passion for his Father's glory. Let's look at another way. You know what it means to be sane? Sane. Sanity is when you think the right thoughts about reality and you feel about reality the way that you should. That's what it means to be sane. If you're insane, you don't think in a way that corresponds to what's real, and so you don't feel in a way that corresponds to what is real. Jesus is the most sane person who ever lived because he sees reality as it actually is, and he feels about reality the way someone ought to feel about it. So he's sane, and he wants us to join his sanity. Do you know what the Mona Lisa is? Mona Lisa, it's one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's priceless. Now imagine you own it. Would you trade it for a bag of chips? For a car? Would you trade it for a house? No. You don't trade the Mona Lisa for something less than it's worth. Unless you're insane because you don't have a grasp of reality. There's just a picture. I can make a picture and put it on my wall and try to sell it for somebody. Just a picture. That's what insane people do. Do you know what the Kohinoor diamond is? 
It's the most expensive diamond in the world. It's in the British crown jewels. Imagine you own it. Would you trade it for lunch? Movie tickets? No way. An insane person would. It's just a rock. Of course, if I can get a lunch out of this rock, I'll take it. You're out of touch with reality if you trade that diamond for something less. What if someone else took your Mona Lisa and tried to trade it for lunch? It's just a picture. Or someone took your Kohinoor diamond and tried to trade it for a car. It's just a rock. You'd be pretty upset. That's how Jesus feels when he sees his treasure treated like it's just a rock. This man is in touch with reality. Jesus does not want you to trade his father for something less. That's what insane people do. Jesus knows because he's in touch with reality that his father is the most valuable thing in all the universe. That's why he's fired up here. Because people are treating his father as if he's a way to make a little extra money. That gets Jesus really fired up. This is a parentheses here. If you see a pastor, and a lot of people come from countries where that's what pastors do. They do the, the worship thing to make money. If you get a whiff that a pastor is doing what he's doing to make money, run. That's a cursed ministry. Jesus gets fired up about this because he's sane. He wants you to value his father at market price. He's worth more than everything and anything. So don't trade him. Don't trade your worship so that you can get something else. I'm coming to God to worship so I can get money. I'm coming to God to get some fame. Whenever you trade God, you're trading down. Always. Jesus sees reality as it is. He's zealous that we would join his sanity and see his father like he does. Let's talk about why Jesus has the right to reform our worship. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So they're asking, what gives you the right to come in here and tell us how we should worship? You're not a Levite. The Levites were those who had command of the temple grounds. You're not part of the Sanhedrin. You're not in the ruling class. So if God's telling you to do do this to us, you need to show us a sign that you have permission to regulate our worship. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? The Jewish temple that Solomon built had been torn down. It had been rebuilt, and it had been renovated by King Herod for the last 46 years. They think that Jesus is saying, you tear this building down, and I'll put it back together in three days, which would be a pretty amazing thing to do. But that's not what Jesus means. As always, Jesus means something more. Verse 21 through 22. He was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He's talking about his own body when he talks about the temple. He's going to die, and then three days later, he's going to raise. He's the temple. If you were around for our corporate worship series a couple months ago, we jumped ahead into John 4, where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. Do you remember that? When he speaks to her, he tells us in Jerusalem on the temple, that's not where people are really going to worship. How can he say that? How can he say the temple, the place where people came to worship God, the place where sacrifices for sins were made, the place where people directed their prayers and their intercessions because the presence of God was there? How can he say that's not where you're going to worship anymore? Because he's the temple. So in answer to the question that the Jews posed to Jesus, what gives you the right to come in here and regulate our worship? His answer is staggering. I have the right to regulate your worship because I am the place, the only place where anyone will really worship God. Staggering. He is the place where sacrifice for sin is made once for all. Hear this. Don't know where you're from, what your background is. What Jesus is doing when he dies and three days later is raised back up, he's dying as a sacrifice. All the other sacrifices, oxen, sheep, goats, they were just a picture of this. Those didn't cleanse your sins away. Jesus' blood does. That's what he's doing. He's the way that your prayers reach God. When they go through Jesus, God looks at his son and he says, yes, I'll receive that prayer. And he is the place where the presence of God meets humanity. So let's put this all together, okay, where we've been so far in this sermon. Jesus' zeal is for our worship to honor his father in the way that his father deserves. Since Jesus is the place of our worship, he has every right to change the way we worship, to reform our worship, and that's what he's zealous to do. He's zealous to change you. He's zealous to change me. He wants to change the way we approach his Father. Verse 17 puts these words into Jesus' mouth. Zeal for your house will consume me. He will be consumed in his zeal to see his father honored, literally. He will be swallowed up by death at the cost of his life, paying for unworthy people like us to be able to worship worthily. Full forgiveness of your sins, past, present, future. If you trust him, all of them gone so that you can approach the Father. And he's purchasing something else. He's purchasing your change in this life 
to change the way you, you come to God, to stretch your categories of how you ought to think about God and feel about God when you approach Him. That's what He died to do. He wanted to make you sane. He doesn't want you to trade the Mona Lisa or sell the Kohinoor diamond. He wants you to see there is nothing more valuable than his father. That's what he's come to do. So what does this mean for us now? What Jesus was doing in the temple courtyard, securing the kind of honor his father deserves, is the same thing he was doing on the cross. He's securing the honor of his father, the infinite worth of his father to be seen and recognized and worshipped. That's the same thing he's after in your life today. He's raised from the dead. He hasn't changed his priorities. He's after the same thing in your life right now, which means practically for you, Jesus is going to refine you in a few ways. He's going to refine, in the first place, your knowledge. Your knowledge. For your worship to be right, it's in spirit and truth. You've got to grow in your understanding of who God is if you're going to worship Him rightly. So here's an encouragement for you. If you've been a Christian for a day, if you've been a Christian for 40 years, don't stop growing in your desire to know more about God to know him better. Some of us reach a point where we're like, well, I guess I'm kind of doing ministry now, so I'm going to sit back. I've got, I'm equipped. I'm ready to go. I'm going to use what I have. And we stop pressing on. I want to know. I want to grow in my knowledge. A lot of us think that's a waste of time. We got to do ministry. It's not. Jesus wants to refine the way you think about his father. So seek to grow. Seek to do that in your personal times. I mean, the reason we do these Saturday morning classes when we don't have membership class going on is because we want to help people. None of us have arrived at a perfect knowledge of God. When you're in heaven, by the way, you're not going to be like, I know everything there is to know. Forever, you're going to be refining your knowledge of who God is and growing in your knowledge. So don't stop. Jesus is going to refine your emotions. He's going to refine the way you feel about God. Do not think that your emotional responses to God in worship now are all that they should be. They're not. For none of us are our emotional responses to God in worship where they ought to be. Jesus wants to refine us. It really does take stretching to know the kind of happiness that's mingled with trembling and fear. Jesus wants to do that for you. He wants to stretch you and change you. We as a church need to grow corporately in this. We want our gathered worship to be weighty like God. Heavy, but happy. To worship him rightly is to engage your heart in a heavy happiness. It's heavy happiness. It's heavy. It's not like a cloud that blows away because you wake up in the morning with a toothache. It's heavy. It doesn't move. Not by the stormiest circumstances in this life. Not by the wildest waves of suffering. Worship 
engages the most weighty and serious reality, God himself, and finds in him unending horizons of happiness. We've got to be stretched to worship like that. Should be reflected in our worship together. Our worship when we gather should be reverent, but so rich. It should be deep, oceans deep, but captivating enough for children. Serious, but full of joy. That's what Jesus is out to do in us. That's what he's out to do. And by the way, this is what the world needs to see. It's kind of a side note. But it's very easy for us to look around and say, well, there are visitors coming in who may not be Christians, and we want more visitors to come in. So let's make this more comfortable. Let's give them, let's take their categories and let's bring them in here so that they feel at home. That's not what they need. They already get that. When they come and they see a guy stand on stage and make a lot of jokes, that's what they're getting all week long on YouTube. When they see a TED Talk, that's what they're getting all week long. When they come in and they think, that guy is burning as though he thinks this is real. That's what they want to taste. When they come in and they see us singing and they're like, wait a second, this is not a show. Showmanship's what they get all week long. That's what they get, light, breezy showmanship. When they come in here and they think, these people are singing like they mean it. And these lyrics, like truth stacked on top of truth stacked on top of truth, it's so serious, but they're so happy. That's what they need to taste, because that's what God tastes like. We want that to be reflected in our worship, and that's what Jesus is out to do. It's what he's zealous to do, not just back then, but today. So let's join his sanity. Let's be zealous for the greatest treasure in the world, as if it is. And let's be zealous that all of the people around us treasure it the same way. Now, let's close with the final warning, which is the last three verses, starting in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this is during the same time, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We're going to see this kind of thing a lot in John. It's a theme in John, that people are believing in him, but Jesus doesn't think it's sincere. They believe in him in one way or another, but he knows what's going on inside their hearts, and it says he doesn't entrust himself to them. He doesn't trust their belief. That's what's happening here. They believe he's the Messiah. I think they really believe he's the Messiah. They've seen his signs, so they believe that he's powerful, but he sees their hearts. They want his power and his influence to build their own kingdoms. I think that's what Jesus is seeing in them. They see true things, and they'd like to use him to build their own kingdom. And that's a far cry from the revolution of heart that Jesus has come to accomplish, isn't it? He will not have people use him to increase their own value. He has come to increase our vision of his Father's value. It's 
So let this be a warning to us. The real Jesus is about changing you so that you see his Father as the worthiest of all worship, the greatest treasure in all the universe. That's what he's out to do. If you come to him to use him for something else, to get something better than his Father, he will not disclose himself in a way that saves. So rather, seek Jesus so that you can be sane and enjoy God as your greatest treasure. If you seek him that way, he will disclose himself to you. He will help you. He will stretch you. He'll strengthen you for worship. That's what he's zealous to do. Let's pray. Jesus, do that work in us, please. We plead with you, don't stop the work that you did 2,000 years ago in the temple and on the cross. Don't stop. Please. None of us think the way we ought to about you and your Father. None of us feel the way we ought to about you and your Father. And, and we lose when we don't think and feel rightly about your Father. You and your Father are the most valuable treasure in all the world. So make us sane, Jesus. Stretch us. Strengthen us. Purify our worship. You have the right because you're where we meet God. So help us. Help us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you do not leave us alone but what you've purchased on the cross for us, you accomplish. You bring about by the Spirit. So work in us now, we ask in Jesus' name.